Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Sharon Peacock and I'm Professor of Public Health and Microbiology at the University of Cambridge and the Executive Director of the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, which was developed at PACE to generate SARS-CoV-2 genomes for the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm also a non-executive director on the board of the Cambridge University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. So welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. And I'm going to hand you over now to Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Thank you very much indeed, Sharon. And uh, firstly, congratulations on your CBE. Um, but also it was uh, Martin Doherty, uh, who we both know well, and I've been fortunate enough to be Martin's coach, and now I'm very lucky to be yours, um, in that they really speak very highly of you and the work that you've done. And this series is all about people who recommend other people that they find inspiring. Now, Martin's someone I find very inspiring, and he said that for him, you uh, capture the three points that we look for on this series, which is humility, humanity, and a nice bit of humor. And I found as we've worked together, you have all three. So look, great having you on the series. Tell us, tell us I mean, you've had a, a hell of a couple of years with COVID. Um, tell us a bit about what you've been doing uh, and this team you you encouraged to come together to help the country and the and, and the government yeah thanks well i'd start by saying that we've all had a hell of a two years actually and every one of us have our own story to tell about that um so we've all we've all been through the mill my story started really in the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020. So going back a bit longer than that, I've spent 10 years thinking about and working on how we can take the kind of technology of sequencing and kind of apply it to pathogens that cause us problems, cause disease and, and cause outbreaks. And I've been thinking about how, how to apply sequencing to pathogens to make a difference for human health and to improve human health. So when the pandemic came along, um, I, I felt very strongly that we needed to apply sequencing to the virus that caused COVID-19. And the reason that was important is because viruses like other pathogens and other organisms, they evolve over time. And they do that, to, uh, they do that through a process of natural selection, i.e they're likely to get fitter and fitter over time. And what that means is they could be more transmissible or they could dodge our immune system. So back in March, 2020, uh, when there were fewer than around 80 diagnosed cases in, in the UK, um, I set about getting a group together to develop the consortium, which I now run specifically to get the technology up and ready so that we were sequencing the virus as much as we could and be prepared to capture those viral changes, those mutations, and be ready to use sequencing to provide actionable information to public health agencies. Mm. Uh, absolutely, absolutely fascinating uh, what has been achieved and the amount of hard work by so many different people, quietly out of sight, but um, not out of impact, 
it is very encouraging and, and very inspiring. So that's been a really busy time. But take us back to early childhood and, and the kind of events that have shaped your life to come and be the leader you are today, working with some fascinating people, making a real impact and helping so many people in this country and beyond. Yeah. Before I do that, just a point that there are 600 people in the consortium that, that I manage and there, there are uh, they're nearly all volunteers and mm. unsung hero is the is the is a really important phrase because they have they've worked away and they have made that happen mm. but where did I where did I start um well I I have to say that I didn't do too well at school I think that's probably an understatement actually I, I didn't do too well at school and um I failed the 11 plus so that was a real uh kind of key moment in the life of people that went to school and I did and if you failed your 11 plus you went to the secondary modern school and most children did go to the secondary modern school rather than grammar schools and um, in in our school we the focus was really on very practical training so I, I did uh, home economics uh, sewing and 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 other sort of practical skills we could learn shorthand typing and there was a, a, a basic education in, in English and, and mathematics. And, and you could take GCSEs, they were called O-levels back then. Uh, but actually, I was prevented from taking uh, O-levels in maths, physics and chemistry. And so I left school at 16 and um, with no career aspirations, actually. And I went and worked in a corner shop where I had been working part time before I left school. So it felt like the natural progression to go and work in this shop uh, full time. And that's, that's exactly what I did when I left school at 16. Mm. And, and it's so interesting, that kind of experience at 16, what did it teach you about humans, people? You know, I mean, I know we talk about pathogens and you spend your time examining them, but I found you to be very good in the way you relate and connect with people. You must have learned a lot, even just in the corner shop. I loved it, actually. I really loved it. I, I worked, they, there was a small uh, deli counter there where I would serve um, cheese and meats and so on. And um, I really loved that. I loved the precision of being able to uh, put biscuits on the shelf so that they look really nice and really presentable. By the end of the day, you know, the, the biscuit shelf was looking a bit, bit scruffy, so I'd have to go and tidy it up. That was a great joy. And actually being with people and serving them, um, I liked serving people and that was, I really enjoyed my, my time uh, mm. in, in the shop, actually. Yeah. It, it brought me into, into contact with a lot of the local community and, and that was just fun. Mm. And so take us, take us on from, from the corner shop. What next? Yes. Well, there was a notice board uh, in the corner shop, which advertised uh, jobs and about two doors down, there was a dental surgery and they'd put a notice up to say they were looking for a, for a dental nurse. It was a single handed practice. So there's one dentist and um, this position was actually the only dental nurse and, and combined with receptionist, actually. So I applied for that and I got it. So I moved two doors up and uh, I worked as a dental nurse. And that was that was a good time, really. It was very hard work. I'd work long hours and on Saturdays. Uh, but I was able to go to evening class, um, uh, take a train and take an evening class one day a week where I trained to be. Um, you know, get the theory side of, of dental nursing. So I became a qualified dental nurse over a period of around two and a half years. 
Right. And that was fun because you really helped to run the business. Um, you were responsible um, for opening up the dentist and keeping everything clean and making sure that your patients were well looked after. Um, so that, again, I grew, a lot, I grew up a lot during that period of time because I was really running the business for my dentist. Yeah. And you would have been, what, about 18 or 19 by the time you finished there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was. I started when I was, I was still 16. And so by the time I left, I w- was 19. Um, and, yeah. and I got a huge amount of very practical experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a busy place. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot there. Yeah. And you couldn't really be a wallflower there because you were the receptionist. You also had to work with him and he, he probably had quite high standards. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yes. OK. OK. So from how did you get from dental nurse to the next stage of your career? Well, I, I realised that I really liked by this time, I really liked to serve others. And uh, but I wanted to go beyond. I mean, teeth are really important in our lives. They help us eat, and they, you know, they, they, you know, they're important in our appearance and so on. But I wanted to do something more, so I, I applied to become um, a general adult nurse. Um, it was quite difficult to get in because I didn't have any of the appropriate GCSE qualifications, and you know, the dentist that that wasn't as important then. But for nursing, it was. And so it was quite difficult to get in to become a, a you know a, a trainee nurse to become a state registered nurse, but I did get in, and I went off to uh, train as a nurse, um, uh, which which I which I completed and enjoyed a great deal. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting both um, the dental side and and the nursing side. Um, uh, it may only just be an urban myth, but I seem to remember that dentists have some of the highest suicide rates mm. in any in any of the professions and I, I just wondered in your own limited experience why why do you think that is um golly I don't know I think the pressure of work is actually very high for people in the in the uh, healthcare industry generally mm. um I I I'm sure somebody else would be far more knowledgeable about the rate of suicide and why that would be but people generally in the healthcare professions they work very hard they very driven they're very committed uh, but the the pace of work is pretty relentless as we know in the nhs as well yeah and so that brings a, a pressure to bear on people yeah and and never never more so than now and i think it was you saying in the bbc sounds um uh, podcast which i do recommend people listen to as well it was an excellent uh podcast um that we've now got this uh, winter coming up here as we uh, speak now with that influenza and the COVID combination, which is going to make it very hard for, for the, the health professionals working in the NHS and privately to, to deal with that. Um, from, from the nursing side, how long did you do in nursing before you then, I think you then went on to, wanted to become a doctor, didn't you? How long were you a nurse before you, you made the next step? Yeah, um, your listeners must be wondering how long this, this narrative is going to go on. It, it could go on quite a long time, but... Um, the next stage, really, I was on a male medical ward, actually. It was in Brighton at the Royal Sussex County Hospital. And I was six months into my training and I was watching doctors, junior doctors, take a history from patients, examine them, do the test, get a diagnosis. And I thought, wow, that is what I want to do in my, in my career. I really want to be a doctor. I didn't tell anyone because I thought that actually people might find that quite amusing, that somebody with very few qualifications wanted to be a doctor. 
Um, and I think it's right that actually we have doctors from you know every walk of life and background because that's what our patients represent. But then it was quite tough to say, well, I want to be a doctor next. And um, so, you know, six months in, I knew I had to go to night school to get um, O-level GCSEs in physics, maths and chemistry, which I did. Um, and then I knew I had to get A-levels. <clears throat> and so I completed my training as a, as a nurse and I worked on a, a male medical ward uh, for a period of time. And I did nights, actually, because if you do nights, you know, when patients are sleeping, you can get your textbooks out and read them. And then I enrolled for a part-time A-levels in a technical college. And at the same time, I specialised in end-of-life care. And so for two years, I worked in two uh, hospices, um, nights and, and weekends, and whenever I had time, as well as balancing my A-levels in, in um, chemistry, uh, biology and physics. Mm. Now, that's... Uh, uh a profession that I have great admiration for nurses, mm. such as the Macmillan nurses doing end-of-life care. And uh, having had my brother who died just two months ago and we had to do end-of-life care at home for him, palliative care. Mm. Um, and he was way too young in my view at 63 to die, but um, great respect for that. What, what was perhaps one or two things that you learned when you're with people who know they're going to die? I mean, you know, the, the lessons from those who are dying are quite profound for us today. And I think you got very, you're very much grounded in the attitude you have, as we'll talk about when you talk about your poems as well. But what did you learn doing palliative end of life care? Mm. Well, I think that to be with somebody in their last few days, weeks or months is, is something that is, is um, a great privilege, actually. It can also be quite hard, especially if you do that repeatedly. Um, and so you get to know that patient, you get to know their backstory and you get to know their family. And that's, you know, so over the years, you're, you're, you accumulate the memories of people who have, who have died. You don't ever, ever forget them. You carry them with you, but you have to let go the fact that they've died because otherwise it would be impossible to get through life really uh, with that kind of sadness. And so you have to let it go. But they have taught me a great deal. And, you know, the key thing is really to grab uh, life by the ears and enjoy every single moment, you know, really enjoy every drop of it. You know, for example, make sure that you spend time with your family and friends, make time, make time for yourself to go to your concerts or read that book that you've always wanted to read and live your life to the full because it's not going to last forever. And, and it's so important to, to, to take time out work is not life um work is important but but go out there and live life uh, and say the things that you want to say to people as well don't hold back on that so i i learned a lot from uh caring for people towards the end of their life mm, yeah. and those are just some of the things that that i, I kind of kept with me really yeah no i'm i'm i must admit that, that really touched me uh, and made me really think thank you um so, so how do we get to where you are now? What were the next couple of steps? Well, um, after my light bulb moment as a, as a nurse, thinking I'm going to be a doctor, and, and, and uh, I, I confided in my partner, who's still my husband. Um, uh, we've been together for a long time. But I, I worked hard. Uh, I applied to medical school two years running, and I was rejected. And... Um, 
I got to the point where I thought, I really want to do this. And, and by this time, I was what's called a mature student. I didn't think I was that, that old. I was 23. But I picked up the phone and I rang my university of choice, which is the University of Southampton. And I said, look, can you just please consider my application? Um, I didn't really know what else to do, to tell you the truth. And so they said, well, OK, come and come and see us and write an essay, a little essay, 400 words on why you want to come and, and do medicine. And I was interviewed uh, by the admissions tutor at the time. And I remember it really clearly. And something must have sort of struck him that it was worth taking a risk on me, actually, because I, I did have a, something of an unusual background for, for compared with other medical students. And I was in medical school within a month. I think somebody must have dropped out, perhaps. Um, and within a month of that interview, I was in medical school and I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. You know, this was amazing. And really, you know, the the social the social mobility of, from education, from being able to take yourself from one place to the next to the next through education is immensely powerful. And really, since um, medical school, I've, I've just had a well, I've always had a brilliant time in my life, but I never looked back uh, after that moment, really. And medical school was brilliant. Fantastic. And then from medical school, how about the, the microbiology and all the pathogens yes. and things like that? Yeah, well, I, I trained as a doctor. I then uh, decided I was going to be a physician. I was particularly interested in cardiology, actually. I thought I was going to be a cardiologist. And um, I, I did my higher professional training, so I became a member of the Royal College of Physicians. And then I went to work in, in Oxford, um, where infectious diseases and microbiology was very strong. And having spent my time there, I just really fell in love with that discipline. And so I trained to be a clinical microbiologist, which is the discipline where you, you, um, you're kind of a specialist on how to diagnose infectious diseases, how to treat it. And infection prevention and control, stopping people getting infections in hospital and so on. That, that, that would be my area of expertise, you know, prescribing antibiotics and so on. So that, um, and so I became a consultant microbiologist in, in Oxford for a period of time. Yeah, uh, fascinating. Well, as you, as you know, I had my own uh, recent uh, massive infection and antibiotics were given to me. But of course, um, I'm a great one for building up the gut microbiome. How, how do we get it? How do we get it back when we've been through a process of ripping out most of our gut flora and fauna by sort of, it's almost like I, I use the analogy, it's like trying to kill a terrorist in London and you, you nuke the whole of London, but you get that one terrorist, but you take out the rest of the town. Um, what would you recommend as sort of getting your immune system back up and getting yourself healthy after you had something like this with pathogens? I, I think it's, it's kind of like common sense um, advice, really. Uh, so, yes, antibiotics really do perturb uh, the, the gut flora, but antibiotics are, are absolutely life-saving, and there are times when we absolutely need them to save our lives and to reduce uh, disease burden, you know, so that we, 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 we stay well. Mm -hmm. And the reason why our life expectancy is so much higher now is in large part um, due to antibiotics and the ability to treat infectious diseases. But yes, it does uh, perturb the, um, the gut microbiome. And I think it's just sensible, you know, uh, balanced diet, sensible eating and, um, you know, rest and nothing to extremes. And your gut microbiome will, will return. Mm. Um, you have to be a patient and look after yourself, you know, mm. eat, a, eat a healthy, balanced diet. There's 
and moderation with good food, good food and you know some some sense looking after yourself basically yeah will bring it back the the difficulties when you're on antibiotics for a lot very long time which can actually perturb it for you know extended periods of time some people do need to take antibiotics for a long time but if you have a short course you do it because it's it's life-saving or it can really uh, treat your condition which is the right thing to do but then you can recover uh, your your gut microbiome by you know a sensible eating and looking after yourself so it will get back to, it will get back jonathan don't it worry. will get back it will get back <laughs> so Sharon, let's go let's go around the inspiring leadership compass the the eight points and some tips from you which those listening could uh, make use of let's begin at the very top with the the true north the um the mq the moral quotient uh, your values your beliefs your upbringing if, if you were to share your sort of top three foundational values that you've lived by what what would they be mm. Compassion will be at the top. I don't think you'll be that surprised about that, but that sort of that is is inherent in in how I how the work that I do, but how how I uh, approach life. The second would be endurance. Sometimes you have to keep at things and um, and not let let life setbacks you know put you off too much. So I think endurance is my second, and my, my third is integrity. I think to have a deep integrity, I think that, you know, in, in the world that we live in at the moment, integrity has never been more important than yeah. it is now. Well, perhaps it's always, actually, that's probably not true. It's, integrity is always important, but we have to remind ourselves of the importance of integrity mm. and honesty. Yeah. And, and, and hold others to account for the same. Yeah. Uh, never, never more important than currently, whether we're talking about the environment or the pandemic or digital transformation and i just if i could jump back to, to, to two questions i had for you which i i skipped over but i, I really want to uh, ask them of you the, the the first one is proudest moments and darkest mm -hmm. moments in the whole of your in the whole of your life what would you pick out as a proudest moment and what you learned from it and and a darkest moment in professional or personal life and what you also learned from that yeah i'm going to focus on work because the proudest moments have to be my in my in my overall life is absolutely has to be family my proudest moment at work is the development of the consortium i run at the moment and what i learned from that is that people will come together in times of crisis and behave in a way that's quite utterly remarkable that they're, they're put aside their work they'll work so hard they'll put aside their own needs and wishes and get something done collectively. So the UK has now sequenced more than 1 million um, viral genomes in for the pandemic response. And, and that makes a real difference because it will help us understand uh, whether the virus is becoming more immune to vaccines, et cetera. It's, it's a critical um, capability. So that that I'm really proud about that, but I'm proud because of the people that made it happen. Um, it, it, it was them. My darkest moment was really, I, I, I lived and worked in Thailand for seven years. Um, I worked out there running a research um, uh, group on bacterial diseases of actually the rural poor in, in South and East Asia. And I was there when the tsunami uh, happened oh, wow. in 2004. In, um, in, in, there was an earthquake and tsunami in the, in the Indian Ocean. And so Boxing Day 2004... 
we had decided as a family not to go to the beach uh, and that's quite unusual actually we'd normally go to the beach in in at Christmas and I started to get messages coming in from people saying are you okay you, you know where are you and um that was a really profound moment because um people in our in our apartment block they didn't come home uh, friends and family teachers um my children's friends um and that was a really really difficult time actually and so that was tough but then we got word that people were developing a, a particular infectious disease which is quite rare in the area that it was affecting thailand in it was called melioidosis it, it's something that's quite a kind of a rare disease in the uk but it's very important in parts of the world and this bacterium it lives in the soil naturally it lives in the soil and in certain places of the world and you get disease by either inhaling the bacterium or getting in through a cut and we started to hear that people had this disease called melioidosis in the tsunami affected areas and so myself and a team of Thai colleagues went to uh, the affected area um, to see if we could help. So we did ward rounds. Um, we, uh, we helped advise about how to culture the bacterium because it's actually really difficult to spot if you don't know what you're looking for. It looks like a kind of a contaminant, it looks like kind of something that you would just um, pass over. You also need three months of antibiotics at least to cure this. It's like something that just, um, it's very difficult to, to eradicate from the body. Um, and the reason that we wanted to do that is because we wanted to help people who had de developed myeloidosis. But this bacteria is also being, it, it, it's like a kind of, it's almost like a time bomb. So if you actually acquire the organism, it can last in your body completely quietly for up to 30, 50 years. So the longest time between exposure and, and disease is up to 50 years. And in fact, it, it affected the US veterans who were, in the conflict in Vietnam. And so there were people who got disease many years later. So people have to know whether this is a real problem. So we went and studied it. We, we, we collected soil from the environment to see if the bacterium could be cultured and it could. We saw cases and they did have melioidosis. We checked people's blood for antibody levels to see if they'd been exposed to this during the tsunami. Because of course people were very injured and they had cuts and they inhaled water, et cetera. And, and this organism doesn't grow in the sea, but it, it all got mixed up with kind of the, the soil on the land. That taught me so much. Um, it taught me about the fragility of life. Um, so we went to an area of, of, uh, of Thailand called Kaolak, where there are about three and a half thousand people um, living, a fishing village actually, and the whole town was, was completely eradicated. There were big fishing boats actually beached up on the, on, on the land. And I'd never seen anything quite like that before. It was... It was extremely profound. So I think that, you know, looking back there, what I learned about that is several things. First of all, you have to do something if you think you've got something to offer, even if it's quite small. There was a, there was a small number of people with melioidosis. We went down there and we did our best. You know, we, could, we weren't part of the helicopter crews or the deep divers or whatever, but we, we did our best. So I think that, you know, getting up and doing something, if you think there's something you can offer, I think that, you know, and not being frightened to stare something like that in the face um, and get on with it. But also it teaches you yet again about the fragility, fragility of life. I keep seem to I seem to have those lessons again and again, actually. I'm not quite sure why. But, um, yeah, I think realizing that something can happen. People were taken by surprise when they were, at, you know, you know, having a Christmas holiday 
and nothing's ever the same. So you have to remember that in your life. Yeah, and I couldn't help but notice and pick up, and I felt it viscerally from you, somatically from you. As you were talking about that, it, it must have really hit you and all those you knew and loved so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and you you will never it was 2004, but you'll never get over that. You'll never forget that. No. Um, just as friends of mine who served in combat and, and lost friends never get over it, um, whether it's PTSD or whether it's just the memory of the people they lost, uh, whether they've been the Falklands War or Bosnia or wherever else they might be, Iraq or Afghanistan, because mm. um, it was like a war zone. Um, it was. It was absolutely. Whole landscapes were completely obliterated, um, and there were some very, very sad scenes there. Um, but um, you're right. It was. It was difficult. But it comes back to this idea that, um, and you, you're right. I do still feel quite emotional about it. But you, 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 you remember. It's important to remember. But you have to let go if you can, the emotion of it. Um, yeah. You know, we've just got, we've, we just had Remembrance um, uh, Sunday and, and, and Remembrance. And, and these are points, I can't tell other people how to, how they should live their lives. But for me, if I remember that very vividly, mm. but on a day-to-day -day basis, I have to, you know, you have to let go. I, I certainly have to let go of that emotion. Yeah. And, yeah. But it was a very, very valuable lesson in life, I have to say. Yeah. No, I think it was, and it's interesting you mentioned Remembrance Service, because obviously for me, my father served and was killed when he was 33. My uncle was killed serving when he was 29. My grandfather was serving in the war office and he was killed in a plane crash aged 50. And so uh, they, it, it's times you remember them and, and you don't have to wait for once a year. You can often have their memories just at different times of your life. But uh, I, I think it, Th those kind of experiences are, are just shocking, very public and very, you know, global. Um, Thailand, have you ever been back since? And, and if you were to recommend to someone like myself, Lee and I wanted to go to Thailand, where would you recommend if we, if we like coasts and beauty? Where, where would you recommend we go now after it's all recovered? Well, I do go back regularly um, and I have long life friends having having worked there for seven years. I have I have very uh, strong bonds with Thailand and, and I took my children. They were when we left, they were six, six months and two six year olds. We were all standing in the lobby of our house waiting for the taxi to come along. And my husband and I looked at each other. So what what are we doing? But they they we all had the time of our lives and, and they still look back to Thailand very fondly. And I continue to go back. So I worked there um, on and off for many years. And I can't wait to go back now that the restrictions, travel restrictions are over. I think in terms of where to go, um, I won't get started because there are so many beautiful places in Thailand, so many beautiful beaches, um, and also uh, the countryside too. And so uh, Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, into the hills, but there are some incredible places all across Thailand. And so, Jonathan, we're going to have to have another session <laughs> offline <laughs> when I take you through an itinerary because it's a really wonderful place with uh, with wonderful people, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So a good place to go back. And, and you know, they need the tourism. Uh, they do. They um, do. No, it's interesting. We, we went to a wedding just at, in February 2020, a wedding in Sri Lanka. And of course, they got hit terribly on the West Coast. It sort of swung round and whacked against 
the West Coast, the wave uh, of the country, and they lost so many people too, and the devastation, but they were very grateful for the tourism. But then of course, COVID-19 just wiped the tourism out. So they, they're desperate to get themselves back up and we can help them. Um, so much we could talk about there, but I, I also, one of my other questions was, all the experiences you've had now and all that you've learned, if you were to go back to the 16-year-old the working in the corner shop, doing the deli counter, yeah. um, and then doing the dental nurse bit, what bit of advice would you give to the young Sharon Peacock about this is important, but don't worry about that, which might be relevant to people who are at the same age now, but uh, what would be your bit of advice? I would have told myself, I think, that um, it's going to be okay in the end. And everything's going to work out. Um, and that actually it would have been helpful if somebody had told me that I, I was better than I thought, um, because I I didn't really, you know, feel I had any any gifts or talents when I was younger. And and, and to, to hear somebody say, Do you know what? You, you are a lot better than you think. Um, so get on and get out there and follow your dreams and do everything you can to mm. make that happen. And and I think the other piece of advice is really along the way, you only need to compare yourself with yourself. And so you can continue to uh, you know, improve your life and, and contribute more in life by comparing what you did yesterday or last year. And, and, and I think for modern, modern day life, don't compare yourself with, with other people um, because that's, that's tough and it's rather futile. So that, that, I think that's what I'd say to myself. It's going to be okay. Get out there and follow your dreams and just compare yourself to yourself along yeah. that journey that's so so profound I, I think looking back I think I was way too intense trying too hard sort of competing with other people comparing myself to other people <laughs> um the, the um one of the psychologists I work with uh, when we do psychometrics Lee and I uh was laughing at um my profile and Lee's profile and, and said that you know Lee is comparative but Jonathan you're competitive and comparative you you got the double problem <laughs> and, and I said that explains a lot of my psychology and my problem um great thank you for that Sharon uh, great wisdom um let's go back around the campus on to number two which was PQ uh, meaning and purpose purpose quotient um why do you do what you do what's your dharma uh, you will of course come across that in your travels um, your vocation, your calling, what, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Mm. Well, you might have guessed by now that, that my, my drive is to serve others. That's what brings me great joy. But there's a special combination when you're actually able to learn and improve yourself at the same time as using that knowledge to help others. And that two-way directionality is, is important because it constantly reinforces the connectivity between improving yourself and making something of yourself but then improving the world and those around you so I think if I if I if I have a dharma it's helping others by improving myself and then going out and using those skills um and that's I guess that's what I've done uh, repeatedly yeah and, and I'm reminded I think it's on um maybe in um Westminster Abbey there's certainly a tomb somewhere of a bishop uh, and, and, and the engraving around the outside said, when I was a young man, I thought I could change the world. And as I got older, I, I realized that was quite a tall order. So I, I thought I, perhaps if I could just change my country, 
Uh, and then as I got older still, I thought, well, perhaps I'll just change the county I'm in. And then again, a little later, I thought, perhaps I'll just change the town. Mm. And then as I come towards the end of my life, I realized that perhaps if I'd begun by changing myself, <laughs> I might have changed my friends <laughs> around me, my town, my county, my country, and who knows the world. So yes, I think uh, you've really nailed it. And it's, it's something that I uh, encourage others that I coach to think about this lifelong learning. And if you think you know it all, that's a problem in itself. If you think you've never made a mistake, that's a problem in itself. But if you're prepared to constantly learn and not stop learning, uh, you know, people doing PhDs in their 90s, I love it. Mm. And, and this, this thing about everybody has something to teach you if only you'd listen. Um, great, great wisdom yeah. there. I think, I think that's so true. And as you get older, you realise you know less and less. That's the problem. Mm. It's, like, it's slightly, slightly scary, actually, because you just realise how little you actually know. Um, whereas when you're young, I think you can think you know quite a lot. So it's like it's weird. It's like a kind of reverse clock. Correct. You correct. realise how little you actually do yeah. know about yeah. life. And, yeah. and, and coming back to knowing yourself, um, if you don't know yourself, then you can't really be a leader. Um, yes, <laughs> and, you know, and the other thing is you can only really change yourself. You can't change other people. It's for them to change themselves. Yes. And they can do that by being inspired by watching you, but you yeah. can't change other people. So there's, there's, um, I love, I love the description, your description there of, of uh, getting to know yourself. But, but if we all started out that, you know, when we were, when we were tiny uh, with that philosophy, then, then that would be great. I think so. And it was it was Socrates who'd go around and he'd say to everybody, know thyself. And, and eventually one of his students who's following around, he says, Socrates, you keep saying to everybody, know thyself. Do you know yourself? He said, no, not yet. But I'm getting to know a little bit about this not knowing. I think it is. It is so very true. OK, um, health quotient. Obviously, you've been in the mm. whole business all your life really uh, after the corner shop in the in the, the world of health what would be your top tips about mental health and physical health if you were to give a tip on each uh, that you've applied to yourself and has helped you and because you've been in a very stressful series of jobs whether it be Thailand or going around those wards in that um, uh, uh, that time with that infection and all that was going on and the death and what's going on and now with COVID and the sequencing of a million um different uh, genomes what's what's your top tips on those two um for mental health i think it's inevitable that during the stresses and strains of life that we'll all have be challenged by feeling you know by by you know by by mental illness or people around us with mental illness i think it's inevitable and we have to become really aware of that so for me speaking about how you feel is really important telling people if you're feeling if you're feeling down you're feeling depressed just tell somebody um you know tell somebody that you're not okay and it's okay to tell someone that you're not okay so i think taking that first step and and it can take quite a lot of courage actually for people to do that but to say i'm not okay mm -hmm. me personally i i use music and nature a lot uh, and i lean on my family a lot um I walk outside and look at the changing of the seasons mm. and family are, are really important to my, to my own mental health. But I think if we can only move towards an environment where we can speak openly about, about feeling mentally ill, 
uh, then then and, and we are getting there but I think there's more to do uh, I, I just want to really uh, support what you've just said and I think there's been two particular times in my life where my mental health has been very badly affected um, and I was you know on one occasion quite suicidal and even contemplated it um, but I got through it um, through talking and through getting some um, CBT based therapy but also some what I call the habit stacking of you know daily stoic mindfulness fitness yoga walking the dog support of my wife that kind of stuff um, but I, I have the greatest respect for others because you can't see it. It's not like a broken leg where they've got a pot on it. People can't see it. Have you ever had a, a challenge to your, your mental health and how have you coped with it? Yes. Oh, oh absolutely. I, I mean, during the, during the uh, uh, early part of COVID-19, that was really very stressful. And I definitely had to go and talk to somebody about that uh, and, and, you know, speak about how I was feeling. And so, you know, and um, so that that step of, of saying to somebody, you know, I'm not all right. Can I can I talk to you mm. is so incredibly important. Um, yeah. And we hear all the time about people that, um, that un unfortunately do end their life and, and people around them don't know about it. And so yeah. it's an area that I'm very passionate about prevention of suicide and uh, reducing uh, people dying unnecessarily. Um, because they, you know, they haven't felt able to to reach out to people and say this is a really desperate moment for me. And as I say, I, I've certainly experienced that myself, and and I think that gives you great understanding yeah. of at least your own, your own, you can't tell what other people are feeling, but your own sense of what that might feel like. Yeah, and and I don't think people should underestimate the positive impact they can have by, as you say, listening well, understanding, supporting someone. Um, indeed, I have been quite moved by three of my clients, not that I'm a psychotherapist, but just they said that if they'd not had the chance to talk it through, they wouldn't be here now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've recommended in all cases that they get therapy as well as the, the coaching. Mm -hmm. But just I don't think people should underestimate that you, you probably don't know the number of people you're helping by just being really there when someone says, you know, and you say, how are you? And they go, oh, I'm fine. And you go, I'm not picking up that you are fine. I'm, no. I'm somatically, I'm getting that you're not yeah. okay. How yeah. are you really? And they go, well, well, really, I'm not okay, actually. Well, okay, yeah. let's let's have a talk about it. No, and, and that's right. You know, it, listening is so important. Listen and watch. Because as you say, Jonathan, you ask again, are you really okay? And, mm. and something else might come out. And I think we often live in our own heads. We're thinking about, you know, what we're going to have for breakfast or what we're going to make somebody for tea or whatever. And or what we want to say next or what point we want to prove actually just being quiet and learning to listen is so mm. important and you and i have both talked about the book by nancy klein which is in on my website on the book reviews that people can look at and download it as an audio or uh, as on amazon called the promise that changed everything i won't interrupt you and i think if we were to really really listen to people we make a profound difference people think oh i'm i'm just listening but if you are really really listening it, it is profound mm -hmm. um the other aspect of health quotient uh, sharon is is physical health you know you're so busy what's your top tip for a, a busy 
woman like yourself and how do you look after your physical health is it, is it the walking and being in nature is that mm. your... well before the pandemic I have to say that I was exercising every day I had a trainer um, I was going to fitness classes I was competitively running doing kettlebell workouts and and now I'm in a phase of my life where that slipped a bit because of pressure of work I'm not going to beat myself up about that actually but I am going to get back to regular exercise and a lot of that is now walking um, I, I, I join a, a fantastic uh, trainer four times a week on Zoom, 7.30 in the morning, and, um, and go and do those workouts. Uh, physicality is really important. And um, so I, I've got, gone up and down over my life on that, as I said, I try not to beat myself up, but I, I do think physical exercise is important, but I do need the motivation. So knowing that I've got to join a Zoom call at 7.30 in the morning is the only way that I get myself out to do that. Uh, so getting it in the diaries is useful. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a very good bit of advice. And once I'm, I'm taking your advice after having been ill for the last month and I'm, I'm just slowly getting better and I'm not doing the HIIT training and all that kind of stuff because that will put me backwards if I just mm -hmm. go too quickly. But I know give it a few weeks, I'll be back training again. But you just have to, at the right time, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, EQ is the next uh, component of what makes inspiring leaders in the research that we've done uh, and, and high-performing people as well. Um, what's your top tip on in, uh, using your emotions intelligently, emotional and social intelligence? What's what's a tip you'd mm -hmm. share? Mm -hmm. I think I'd come back to listening, actually, uh, mm -hmm. uh, repeating myself a little bit, but the the way to uh, to to support your colleagues and and build skills in report is actually to listen what they're saying and and be interested actually in what they are saying um, and understand their context a bit about their lives and so on and people come to work and you don't know people's context really um, but but again being driven by conversations that that are kind of two way and meaningful rather than always transactional sometimes things have to be transactional you've got to get something done you've got to achieve something you've got to reach a milestone or, or whatever but there are moments in the day where it's not always like that and um so listening to people um you know in the coffee room or it's a bit more difficult on zoom now but that listening can be very powerful in creating a, a strong team Mm. And in fact, you've just touched on something which is a great technique if people listening have not used it, I recommend it, which is dialogue, where you agree that the person who's come to see you goes, Sharon, I've got a problem, you know, what, what, what should we do about this? And you go, so, okay, let me ask you your own question. And you go for two minutes and then stop yourself and ask me the same question again for my freshest thinking. And then I'll ask you for two minutes and back and forth until you've got the answer that you want for you to solve it. In other words, that you keep ownership. And that's very powerful mm. to, to know you're going to have two minutes where you won't be interrupted. You're being asked out loud your own question. The brain thinks best in the presence of a question. The, the, the synaptic connections crackle away and, and off things go. If you say it to yourself out loud, it's not the same as you asking me a question I've just asked you. And, and I found that very, very profound. On to CQ, which is cultural intelligence quotient, diversity, equality, inclusion. You know, you've worked in Thailand. You've been with people of completely different backgrounds, nationalities, uh, in, in all sorts of ways. What's your top tip about 
uh, diversity, equality, and being really inclusive. Mm. Actually, if you, the way that I've developed my own sense of, of, um, of cultural intelligence really was by living in Thailand for seven years, where you're the visitor. Um, people around you have different cultural and social beliefs. They have different food preferences, religious beliefs, etc. cultural boundaries. And, and um, I, when I first got to my job, uh, I was given a crib sheet setting out key expectations about how I would and wouldn't behave because some behaviours are very offensive. And it was a bit of a surprise to me, I think, to be honest, to start with. Um, and in the first week, I was taking shopping uh, to, to clothes shopping by a colleague to say, this is what you this is what you might look like would be appropriate for your, your level of seniority. And I think that being completely and, and, and that was something of a surprise to me. But I realized it was really important to think about how other people feel, how, what their culture is, what their expectations are. So. A single top tip almost feels too superficial to somebody to, to around um, equality, diversity, inc inclusion. But I guess always thinking about what the other person um, needs and where they're coming from is something that has to be in your mind every day. So it's not something that a top tip really do does it for me, really. Mm -hmm. I think it, it starts with a fundamental sense of fairness and um, and awareness of, of other people and their, their cultural context as well and each taking responsibility actually I think I think if I had one top tip perhaps it would be that we each have to take responsibility for making the world a more equitable place it's not going to happen without each of us doing that and speaking up no it, you you've also triggered in me a, a particular technique first person second person third person you can almost uh, enact it in chairs there's two chairs you and another person and it might be that you have a problem with uh, another person, let's call him Michael. I play the part of Michael, you sit in your chair and you describe um, the issue. Then we swap over and you occupy the second person's chair. You become Michael and you occupy his physiology and you tell me about Michael and Michael's perspective on life and his family and his upbringing and why he might have certain perspectives. And then you come out of that chair and you stand over in the corner and you look at the empty chair where Michael would be and where Sharon is. And you look at the dynamic between the two of them. You go, what's going on between them? What do each of them have as perspective? And it's the third person where you're able to see, ah, that's what's going on between them. And each of them understanding your own first person, but his second person, but now, the third person perspective it's, it's a very powerful technique yeah. um, when used well um resilience is um the next one uh you you've been knocked back you've been told twice that you couldn't go to medical school and you still didn't give up i seem to remember in the psychometrics endurance is one of your great strengths um you, you don't take no for an answer do you so so um and, and you did say that endurance was one of your things what would be a tip that you'd you'd share to have the resilience to get through times of adversity? I think you're right. I ha have got great endurance, but endurance on its own doesn't get you anywhere. If you just, you know, in your in your silo, you can be as in, you know in, enduring as you like, but you have to actually speak with others to actually enact something and make it make a difference. So um, my 
my top tip really would be to go and speak to other other people um if if you're want to achieve something then then go and ask people you know that you might be pleasantly surprised by by the response if you're having a tough time go and speak to people so I think it's all about about communication because you know resilience and endurance alone doesn't really get you very far until you start to connect um with other people and I think time is a great healer too I think putting time between yourself and something difficult certainly helps me helps me kind of let go um but I think communicating with others is is so vital yeah in your own resilience yeah no uh, time definitely heals and um i remember getting my daughters uh, a book called just ask by a, a yorkshireman and it was this this having the neck just to ask and mm. they they at a very early age probably they might have been 10 or 12 they they learned just to start asking for things and it was amazing what came their way you know what's the worst they can say no mm. uh, but if you never ask you'll never know um the last two around the compass before we go to teams and then books and then top tip would be brand and then legacy. What, um, what have you learned from 360 feedback on your own brand and, and how others perceive you? Uh, what, would you what would you say on that? I've, I've thought about this and I, and I don't think I really have a brand as such. Uh, I don't think. Um, I've never really thought of myself as, as a brand or... Um, I do have an internal brand and that's, we've talked about that, you know, your values. If, if I reflect on 360 feedback, I think it, when you are really focused and you have a great deal of resilience and endurance, you can, you can sometimes uh, uh, miss the fact that you're, 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 you're trying to get something achieved where um, other people might think you're a bit stubborn. <laughs> so with endurance comes a sense of, of stubbornness and, and certainly I can, uh, I, I'm sure that I can be seen as somebody who's actually quite stubborn, but you know what? It sometimes gets the job done. Yeah. But when you have to do something that's really quite different, like setting up the consortium that we set up, that was completely unique. Nobody had ever done that before. Mm. And um, so perhaps I won't, I won't, I won't uh, um, apologize for being stubborn about that because it did need the stubbornness to get the job done. Yeah. But I think, being stubborn <laughs> might be something that that um, people would say I am. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of the, the old saying that sometimes people say that, you know, this person is an unreasonable man or an unreasonable woman. And often most of the amazing achievements are done by unreasonable men or unreasonable women up to a point. And um, everything in moderation. But as they say, you, know, you can a weakness is nothing more than an overdone strength. So being strong on endurance is good but to get to the point of absolute pig-headed when king canute's sitting there with the waves lapping around his knees and he's saying i'm ordering the waves to go back but sire, you know, <laughs> they're not going to go back um i think that's a, a really good one but i i must um uh, uh clarify that you do have a brand by the way we all have a brand and our 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 external brand is what people say about us when we're not in the room. Mm. And of course you won't know that until someone like a coach or whoever it is gathers it. And I, I find it one of the most interesting roles uh, and a privilege. I'm just doing one for a, a very successful entrepreneur who has a number of CEOs who he has supported and they've done very well. Um, and he wants 360 feedback on himself, on his strengths, his development days and how he should focus his attention in the next five years of his life 
Um, and, and so, yeah, I'd always encourage people to, to get 360 by an independent source because you, you'll, you'll just get told what people think they want you to say um, or they, you, you want them to say. So um, that's always a good one. Legacy, um, when sadly Sharon Peacock eventually dies, and I hope it's in many, many, many years time, what would you like your legacy to have been? Mm. The legacy that I work really hard to uh, to build up, I think there are two things. One is that by scientifically, by using sequencing in the way we had, we've broken a glass ceiling so that the sequencing of pathogens are always going to be with us. You know, so before that, it was really very research focused. Now it's going to be very public health focused. And so I think one of my legacies will be to show that you can use sequencing for actual actionable public health actions. And that's a really good thing. The other thing that I think if you were to ask my colleagues about is uh, mentoring. So I'm really, I, I, I do a lot of mentoring. Um, I find it very uh, rewarding actually. And there are a, a, a string of people that I've mentored over my life who um, I would hope I've helped. Uh, and so helping other people to, to reach their best selves um, is I think a way of leaving um, a legacy training. So I've trained 21 PhD students um, and I'm still training PhD students. And education, coming back to, to mobility, education is so important. So mentoring and education are the two um, re really key things that can help other people. And I, I would hope that perhaps quite modest or small, but what I try and do is, is, is think about my legacy through those terms. Yeah, uh, and beautiful. And I'm sure you know, you've made a massive difference. I, I've even found in, in our interactions, I learned so much from you and I'm grateful for that. And, and Martin Doherty, who I uh, think very highly of, speaks uh, of the difference you've made to people's lives in the way you mentioned about the 21 PhD students. Um, let's go on to the final couple of questions and then the top tip. Um, executive teams, um, whether it's 600 in the consortium or volunteers, um, uh, trying to get a herd of cats all sort of in the right direction and heading this way when they're all volunteers, all with strong opinions. Uh, and in the world of, of health and science, uh, there's a lot of very strong opinions, um, strongly held um, and, and strongly put across. What have you done at any stage in your career to turn around a toxic team to make it more high performing? What's a tip you'd give to people listening? Mm. Well, um, I think that... Uh, just going back to uh, to Cog UK, perhaps because that's a, that's an unusual team. It's a very a scattered team of, of six hundred people. Um, one of the key things that I, I did um, from a very early point is to say, actually, as a consortium, we we are going to give everything away. We're going to give our methods away. We're going to give our genomes away. Everyone's going to have access to this. And I, I, you know, you don't have to put me on any scientific publications. Uh, there's a joint publication which then accredits everybody in the in the, in the consortium. Um, and so, if you're going to write a scientific paper, you you put on a kind of joint authorship so that people can get the credit. But I don't want anything in particular. Um, and when people see that you have have very little, you know, you're not asking for very much. You are actually giving more than than you get. 
then actually it can take the sting out of a difficult situation. And, you know, there have been times where people have spoken out in the consortium and they have their own pressures too. People were working, people canceled their own, canceled their own Christmas last, last Christmas when uh, alpha variant arose. We call it the, the variant that stole Christmas, the Grinch variant. People get very stressed and they have to work really hard. So sometimes when they are, 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 are stressed, they can actually speak out in quite difficult uh, ways. So um, this won't necessarily translate to many circumstances, I have to say, but in, in the consortium which I led, um, I, I led by a sense of you know, not trying to control anything or have a sense of ownership over everything, just giving everything away. And that was how we, I think, came together and, and worked together effectively, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I say, Jonathan, it doesn't necessarily translate to other situations, but that's that's how we uh, really diffuse difficult situations. Yeah, I, and, no, and the greater I, good, of course, as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it does, and I think it was uh, one of uh, maybe Truman or one of the U.S. presidents. He said that when you don't care who gets the credit and you don't try and grab it for yourself, then amazing things can be achieved. And and Cork UK has done some amazing things with those 600 volunteers. And, and I think it's a brilliant approach to, to say that we'll give it all away. It's just for the benefit of mankind and society. That, that is a, a far greater good, which inspires people who want to come to work to make a difference mm-hmm. uh, when they're not selfish little clods uh, of, of ailments and, and grievances complaining, why is it not being done for me? Um, I've forgotten who it was. I think uh, I was going to say Oscar Wilde or someone like that. Uh, I'll think of who said it. Um, talking of which, let's go on to books. And I know you have a love of poetry. Tell us about, about um, which what you tend to read and how it helps you. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a book of poetry on my bedside, actually. It's a book of war poems. And actually, when I'm feeling that I need to ground myself, Perhaps I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself or, or, you know, I want to read something that moves me. I will open that. And Wilfred, Wilfred Owen is my, one of my favourite poets. And when you read some of the work that he has written, you just, it's a real, in some ways, it's a pick up because you say, look, your life isn't that bad. And, you know, you have, you can afford to put food on your plate and you can, you, you live in a warm home, etc. You have a family around you. So, Poetry is a touchstone for me. Um, there, there is so much, so much depth in, in poetry in just a small amount of words. So even if you have five minutes, it can be, you know, a profound moment that you can use. Um, I often find I pick up very long books and I don't get to the end, but that, that, perhaps that's why poetry does it for me because I can pick it up and read something. So which is which is the one I, I would like to get the book you're reading? Which is the one I should get? Uh, well. The, the, the poem that I'd recommend by Wilfred Owen, and this is in various volumes, is, is Dulce et Decorum Est. Yes. Uh, which is, it, it, it's, it's uh, sweet, sweet and right to die, die, die for your, well, the whole thing is Dulce et Decorum Est. Um, and then it, 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 the last sentence is, it, it's right and proper to, to die for your country, effectively. And he, he puts across that actually it's an old lie, that it's not right and proper. Um, to to or sweet to die for your country and so if you're going to read one poem and that is in in various different volumes Dulcet Decorum Est is um the book the the poem that I'd recommend yeah thank you 
Wow. Well, I definitely will. Uh, and I do remember reading it and, and that it, it was profound and really made me think, particularly as a serving army officer who um, had a father who gave his life for his country, an uncle uh, and a grandfather. And, and there were moments when it was pretty hairy for me, but I never had to give my life for my country. So I do have respect for those who do. But I also, I remember thinking about the Falklands War and I was so sad I missed it. But then my friends who were there, seeing how damaged they were by it or um, seeing people die, it really has messed with their heads ever since. So um, people like to think it's glamorous and exciting, but there is a, a horrible, price to pay absolutely and this is particularly about world, world war one of course in the trenches yeah. where wilfred owen was and so it's particularly about that period in history and and um uh, i wouldn't be able to con con confer it to kind of other times in our history but certainly world war one in the trenches was mm. was clearly a very tough time my grandfather was was uh, uh fought in the in the trenches and mm. um very difficult place to 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 be yeah uh, and um my other grandfather was there in the Honourable Artillery Company and mm. got knocked over the head with a German Marlin spike and left for dead for two days and crawled back. And he was never the same again no. uh, after that time. Um, so on a more cheerful note, um, let's end with your uh, introduction to yourself again, if you would, Sharon, please, for a two minute top tip on leadership. OK, thank you very much. Well, hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Sharon Peacock. I'm Professor of Public Health and Microbiology at the University of Cambridge and the Executive Director of the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, which was developed a PACE to generate SARS-CoV-2 genomes for the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm also a non-executive director on the board of the Cambridge University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. So welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. I'm going to hand you over to Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you. And would you just give us your two minute top tip, if you would, Sharon? Yes. My two minute top tip is to use two skills that perhaps um, are, are used less than others. The first is listening. So uh, listening is an incredible skill uh, that can be very effective in understanding the people that you interact with, giving them time. Uh, to, to speak and really trying to understand what they're saying, rather than you existing in your head and thinking about what you need to say, what point you need to say, what are you going to make for breakfast, etc. Listening carefully to people can be really, really powerful, together with silence, actually. Silence is very powerful. But the other skill really is to use different lenses to look at situations. And so you look at life through your own lens. But actually, if you look at the lens um, through other people's eyes, the person that you're speaking to, or a stranger, or your leadership icon, if you do that, you come at the situation uh, with a very different perspective. So I think bringing those together can make a real difference to uh, how you um, behave as a leader and how you work. Mm. The two L's, the, the listening the L's. And, and, and the lens. Well, Sharon Peacock, CB, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real honour having you on the series. And uh, please continue to work um, with those amazing volunteers, those 600 people who are making such a difference. And thank you for sharing your wisdom today. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? 
If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>